This week's show is sponsored by Illumio, whose breakthrough adaptive segmentation technology stops lateral threats inside of any data center and cloud. Check out their website for details at illumio.com slash datanauts. Our thanks to Liquid Technology for sponsoring the Datanauts today. Liquid Technology purchases decommissioned IT hardware, provides secure on- and off-site data destruction, as well as fully compliant and green e-waste recycling solutions for your organization. Visit them at liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. Some applications put a different sort of strain on your infrastructure than what you typically see. In-memory databases are one of those. Load up a host with lots of RAM, cram your database in there, and you can get more transactions done due to the lower latency. But if the system is distributed, you've strewn database parts across multiple hosts, so you lose some of that CPU to RAM latency advantage. Or do you? It's an interesting design problem with some complex constraints, and it's on today's episode of the Data Knots podcast. Packetbusters.net, you can find this on all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who maintains a database of every audience member inside of his brain. I'm watching you. That's all right. of you. <laughs> we have a couple of guests that have joined us representing the Apache Geode Project. Swapnil Bawaskar and Jim Bedenbaugh. Swapnil, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? Hey guys, I am a committer on Apache Geode and have been working on this project for the past almost 10 years now. Wow, okay. Hi, I'm Jim Bedenbaugh. I'm an advisory data engineer with Pivotal and I've been working with in-memory data grids and specifically this particular one since about 2011. I just noticed this fun fact about you. Martial arts instructor, a collector of uh, traditional weapons. Just Oh, yeah. I started back in the 90s in the martial arts. I started out in Shotokan, and I eventually became a referee and judge in Muay Thai. So doing cage fights, that's a lot of fun. And then I have a, an actual traditional claymore like in Braveheart and do archery and axe throwing and things like that. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Wow. Cool. So, so if I argue with you about a commit, I should just like let you win. Let, no, no, like, no, let the guys, Wookiee win, basically. <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, I only use my powers for good, not for evil, okay? <laughs> well, Jim, let's start with you, actually. If, let's kick off the discussion with some level setting. Let's define an in-memory database. It's almost easier to say what it isn't than what it is, and it's not a cache. We run into that a lot in the wild, where people think that in-memory databases are caches, but in-memory databases have a lot of features that you don't find with traditional caches. They're going to be very robust. So if you think of a wheeled vehicle versus a tracked vehicle, a wheeled vehicle can go a lot of places and do a lot of things, but an in-memory database is going to be able to cover a lot more terrain and be a lot more robust. It's going to be able to have a lot of high availability that you don't normally see with caches, redundancy, capabilities to fail over. And in our case, it's distributed across multiple nodes in a lot of instances. So to be clear, though, we're actually working on a new paper, me and some of my friends working on a new paper. We're going to try and distinguish that between an in-memory database because there's a lot of fear and certainly doubt as to do I really want to store my data in memory. But it's a great idea. We've been doing it on Wall Street for years, and it works great. Yeah, because obviously memory is typically volatile, and it's like, hey, if everything's in there, what happens when the power goes out? So knowing that there are caveats like that, 
is the underlying thrust to go into this all about performance? Is it really just, I have a performance issue or I have these bleeding edge performance needs and therefore I need to look at in-memory databases? Well, that was the actual push for it in the beginning. So one of our very first customers was on Wall Street. So imagine trading transactions where you're fighting for milliseconds to get a trade in before somebody else. And you're trying to do this as quickly as possible. So yeah, it is all about performance. And it is about getting to it fast, quick, and having the ability to be able to have high availability, redundant copies in memory, so you can fail over in case a node fails and things like that. Right. And you know, since we're talking about performance, right? So one uh, fun fact I'd like to mention here is an in-memory access takes about 100 nanoseconds, and a disk seek is about 10 milliseconds. So both of them sound like really small numbers, but when you convert them to the same units, say an in-memory uh, direct memory access takes 100 seconds, then a disk seek would take 115 days. Yeah, it's like nanoseconds to milliseconds are actually not close in, in terms of measurement. It's a huge disparity. So yeah, exactly. Okay, and that was actually my next question was just uh, understanding the performance boost we get. So that you just clarified that. And again, you said 100 nanoseconds versus 10 milliseconds, you know, for disk versus memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge, huge difference. And so even if you throw in an SSD in there, right? So SSD still has access times of about 0.03 milliseconds. So if you, again, converting it to the seconds scale, right? That translates to around 10 hours. So 100 seconds versus 10 hours. Yeah, <laughs> regardless of the... I know the flash chips are quite speedy, but typically... At least today's architecture, they got to go through the SATA controller and they have to, quote, look like a disk. And that adds all sorts of latency to the traversal of the I.O. Shifting gears a little bit, what is a good use case from a database perspective that works well in memory versus others? Is that a delineation that's made, you know, such as the key value pairs that are popular today or kind of the old relational databases, et cetera? So we have a lot of different types of use cases there. So inline caches seem to work really well, Okay. So you can have essentially an operational kind of database in memory if you need to go to that. And then if you need to go back to a database of record and write it to a back into a persistent traditional relational database, you can do that. Let me give you a good example. I was in South America. I was with a company there, and we were doing streaming data off of cell phone towers. And we were pulling in just massive amounts of data, but we needed to do some very quick calculations on the number of dropped calls during the streaming they use that as a way of saying, hey, we think this tower is out of service. So that's one of those instances where you can get it in memory, you can do calculations very quickly on the back end with functions, and you can immediately do alerting off of that and being able to send guy out into the Amazon to go fix a tower somewhere because a monkey's climbed to the top of it and shorted out everything. It's a very common data center issue, too. We're always dealing with monkey. Oh, wait. Sorry, that's network engineers. It's Ethan. Oh, it's there you go. Oh. Boom. I'm, I'm getting ready for all the hate mail on that one. <laughs> it's a good example, though. With an in-memory database, what are we actually storing? So, I mean, early on, we said, well, it's not just a cache. So what are we actually storing? I mean, is it all the tables and the data? Would it be specific queries? Would it be, like, common result sets that come back? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so I guess by default, right, what you actually get in geode is actually just your data. Then if you do want to turn around and um, store your query results as well, then nothing's stopping you, I guess. <laughs> 
Yeah, the other thing I want to add to that, and we can talk about this more later, we're moving into the off-heap storage area as well. So we not just have the RAM, the heap that you would normally store inside of there, but we can store it in off-heap too. And we allocate big slabs. So it, it can get really large. So if you want to have kind of a data lake in memory, you can do that as well. Well, that's a great lead into the idea of quantity. If we're talking data lakes and large heaps stored in memory, what kind of quantities of memory are we talking about? Is this gigabytes, terabytes? You know, where, where's the scale kind of leading us to? Well, I've worked on grids that are as large as anywhere from 7 to 13 terabytes just in the grid itself. And that's a lot of data. Of course, you, you can't implement too many features in those cases, you know, cache eviction, things like that. On the other hand, we can also go to very small scale, you know, just using a procession state. Interesting. So it doesn't have to be petabytes of memory thrown about all, all over the place. It could just be, this is a great vehicle for performing, you know, joins or queries or whatever it is on the data. And it just happens to be in memory to make the speed and the latency very favorable. That's been my experience, yeah. Hmm. Can in-memory databases be distributed across multiple hosts? And it sounds like the answer is yes. It's a distributed computing problem like any other, but you can do that. Sure. You can actually... The way we configure this, and swap now, feel free to jump in any time, but we typically like to have anywhere from three to, I've worked on grids that are as large as 115 different nodes with JVMs running up to, you know, per JVM is over 100 gigabytes, 115, 112 gigs. So they can get pretty big. That puts some, some serious strains on your network and stuff, but it, it can be done. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that later on. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of the number of uh, the amount of memory per node, right? I think the the biggest limiting factor tends to be the garbage collector. So oh, as yeah. <laughs> your JVM individual servers JVM sizes increase, the dreaded stop the world garbage collector comes in, uh, I guess. And um, so yeah, that is something to look out for. <laughs> that's that's a whole other podcast for you guys. Seems like a big design caveat, or at least a consideration. Well, it's scaling it's, it out. Yeah, it gets tricky because you really have to understand the internals of the JVM and how those work. Now, the guys down at Azul Zing have an awesome JVM that does. It's a C4 JVM, but it's constantly doing garbage collection. But in the traditional ones that we use, like the Oracle JDKs, it can be done. We can manage it. You just have to understand how it works. Right, and in our latest release, right? So we have. As Jim alluded to earlier, we have this feature called off-heap. So we're trying to get the memory allocated outside of the JVM heap and uh, manage it ourselves. So we ended up writing a memory manager, essentially, right, for managing that off-heap memory. So hide the memory from the garbage collector, and so you don't have any pauses. <laughs> so that's the idea. Now, what about long-term storage? You know, If I'm implementing this solution, do I still need a storage area network or a NAS or something on the back end to ultimately long-term retain Ooh, the data? NAS, bad word. <laughs> oh, what's, what's the problem with NAS there? Well, look, in my experience has been, we really, for the best results, my experience has been local storage, guys. I can compromise and go with site area networks, SAN storage, and that works. But my experience personally is it doesn't have the reliability and the performance that SAN does. And so we really try to counsel folks to go away from NAS and stay with sand storage and, if possible, local storage. Okay, so you're more in the, the direct attached or the DAS, if yeah. possible, or, or block storage using fiber and, and what, like a dedicated network. 
so obviously it's a recommended design. It sounds like latency still plays into it because I still need to save the data somewhere for when the right. memory is purged. Right. So we do backups. We do writes. You can persist a disk, but it's got to be something that's very reliable. So in I've got operations happening in memory. I'm doing transactions in memory. At some point, I do write that out to disk, whether you know, direct attached or, or perhaps SAN. Fair enough. When does that happen? When do I go from, I've got everything happening in memory, and now I need to persist this data, and so I'm going to push it out to disk? Yeah, when do you want it to happen? Do you want it to happen asynchronously, or do you want it to happen synchronously? We can do both. Okay, so if I do it asynchronously, then it's on some kind of a, some kind of a time differential, I'm going to be pushing transactions out to disk. If it's synchronously... It seems like I wouldn't want to do it synchronously, would I? Because wouldn't that be potentially impacting transaction uh, latency and so on? How much risk do you want to assume is really the question. So you answered that question, and that's how you would make your decision. If it's a mission-critical application, like uh, one airline I was working at recently, they have these systems that are mission-critical. You have to have them running to operate their aircraft and their airline. It's always going to be synchronous because they have to have that data there. They can't afford to lose it. Interesting. Well, okay, then that, that's actually a great segue. What are the good use cases for in-memory databases? Now, you mentioned early on financials, Jim, that those folks that are like in high-frequency trading, they've got to eke out every microsecond that they can find. You know, great use case there. What other folks tend to go towards an in-memory database? So I would say, well, anytime you have trouble with satisfying your SLA from your application, then it, it's actually a good use case for an in-memory database, right? The kinds of usages we have seen out in the wild is travel. So Jim already mentioned uh, you know, an airline carrier and um, the Indian and the Chinese railways also use Geode as the backend to their websites. So we have that. We have IoT use cases. So uh, again, uh, Jim had mentioned one of, uh, an example, and we have another customer or user, I guess, of Geode who stream data from their wind turbines into Geode and then run analytics on it to see uh, which of the turbines needs to be serviced and when. And again, finance. So one of the features that we have is being able to run code within your Geode servers, right? And so that enables you to iterate and analyze all the data very quickly indeed. And so running risk models in memory is one of the predominant use cases we have in the finance industry. Uh, Ethan, I remember being a vSphere admin and, and even today, and I hear the word JVM and I'm thinking, ah, all the fights that I had with folks that ran virtual machine saying, I'm out of memory, it's all using all the memory, and then I could see the actual hypervisor and say, no, you're not using all the memory because that's what JVM does. Anyway, I just wanted to share that scar that will never go away. But I do love the idea of assessing your needs when it comes to risk. I'm glad that was brought up because risk should drive pretty much every design, especially when we talked about async or sync writes, you know, how do you want to do that? So again, base your design on real world requirements, not just, oh, it's fast or shiny. Uh, so that was a takeaway I had. What about you, Ethan? Well, I was a little surprised at the amount of memory that can actually be useful in the host. And they were talking about, well, you can use gigabytes. I was kind of assuming, just based on some of the reading I'd done, you were probably into a host with a terabyte or two of RAM. 
for it to be practical in this application. I was wrong. You can do this with, they mentioned like 128 gig in your host. It might be a typical host that they were working with in this environment. So, you know, you don't have to assume huge, massive amounts of RAM. You can have still 128 gigs a lot, but not like, you know, this earth shattering number. So sometimes your assumptions are wrong. And this is one of those cases. I'd like to introduce you to our sponsor today, Illumio. Segmentation is the best way to prevent the lateral spread of cyber threats, but traditional network segmentation, you know, VLANs and subnets and zones, et cetera, they only provide some isolation because the primary purpose is to boost network performance, not to provide granular internal security. Now, let's look at the Illumio approach, adaptive segmentation technology. That is designed to stop lateral threats. It works seamlessly between any data center in the public cloud, and it keeps policies in place as applications move between environments and locations, and it can auto-scale up and down. Using Illumio, enterprises such as Morgan Stanley, Plantronics, Salesforce, and King Entertainment have achieved application micro-segmentation, a 90% reduction in firewall rules, and finally have visibility into all of their application dependencies. Find out more about Illumio by going to www.illumio.com slash datanauts. Okay, I think we've done a good job at level setting what in-memory databases are, and I have a much broader understanding of it. Let's dive in. Let's get nerdy. I want to talk about a few specific system architectures here. So let's start with host issues, talking at the individual node or host, and I'll kick it off prefacing a question we, we brought up a little earlier about huge amounts of RAM or at least more than normal quantities of RAM for, you know, your little nook or something like that. Uh, what about bus bottlenecks? You know, when we're designing for that, do we need to worry about the architecture on the board and where the RAM is and how it's constructed? Is that a big concern, small concern? You know, what are some thoughts around that piece of it? What we traditionally will tell folks is you can run this on commodity hardware the way we run right now, okay? That's not a problem. However, if you're going to really do some serious, robust processing and large amounts of data, then obviously you're going to want to upscale the hardware you have out there. So if I have a 128-gigabyte machine and I'm running, what's the latest Intel CPU now with, I don't know, 8, 16 cores or something like that? I can eat them all up. I can eat up all of that and if I'm running like four different JVMs on there. My bigger concern at that point gets to be what's my bottlenecks on the bus to the persistence layer even if i have a rack of servers i don't get too concerned about the network time between it if we're using FiberCon, or even if it's two racks and i have a top of rack switch and i'm flopping back and forth between the two and i've got my cluster sitting on two different racks sitting side by side but i am going to be concerned about the throughput to the back end to the io which is kind of like why we like the local storage but if you have a good SAN network, then that'll work too. So with all the RAM that's in there, do errors become more of an issue? You've got a lot more RAM chips that you're worried about. So, I mean, are we assuming ECC RAM to deal with that? or I would think so, yeah. It, well, here's the thing. Okay, so let's, let's talk bits lost and things like that. They're already going to have a lot of stuff in place to manage all of that error rate checking and things like that. So what we're looking at as part of our shared nothing architecture is really what makes sense in terms of redundant data. Because if I need to be able to get copies of it in case something completely goes down, let's say we get a total massive motherboard failure on one of our servers, we can have redundant copies in memory so that I can fail over to a secondary or even a tertiary copy of that data. 
you're talking about copies of memory spread across multiple hosts. You know, one host would have a copy of it, and a second host would have a copy of it, or even a tertiary host. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're not talking about partitioning memory within one system, and you know, we're we're talking about physically separated hosts. All right. Okay, one more RAM question here. For folks that are designing to a power spec, is if, if I've got a host that's got a whole bunch more RAM in it, does that actually draw significantly more power where that's a thing i got to think about? Yes, absolutely. Because if you're going to sit out there and you're going to run some really big monster machines that are high-end servers and things like that, then that's definitely always a concern. We actually have situations where we go into clients and we have to think about what can be done reasonably on this particular set of hardware? And we've even had designs in the past where we would have essentially proxy servers that are less robust than other servers that would actually just be designated just to forward request onto the more powerful servers. Do you ever entertain the idea of putting these workloads onto a virtual machine? Or is this just use a bare metal box and consume all the resources there and kind of get rid of the hypervisor tax? So the... Uh, run just fine on uh, virtual machines. And uh, just to give uh, you guys a bit of history, I guess, the project Geode, right? It actually was a closed source commercial uh, product called Gemfire, which was then made Geode. So Gemfire um, was actually part of VMware not that long ago. When VMware acquired the product, we actually then had a number of tickets on the hypervisor on on vSphere to make sure that the Gemfire workloads worked well. A ton of effort actually has gone in to make sure that we run on VMware. Now pivoting just a little bit, what about the container world? Like, are you working with folks that are looking to, I'm even having trouble kind of grasping what that would look like, but everyone's very into kind of that model where I guess you would spin up container host on a physical kit and then use containers to encapsulate your workload and just absorb all of the RAM that's on that box? Or are we going too far down the rabbit hole? So I would see containers as probably something that makes deployment easier. Well, just help out developers in general, I guess. So sure. uh, having said that, we have prototypes of Geo working on Kubernetes. Jim, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier regarding, like you mentioned CPUs and cores and the number of JVMs that you could run. If I'm thinking about like designing a box and choosing a motherboard and a CPU architecture, is there a correlation that I should be concerned about between CPUs and cores and the amount of memory being addressed where, you know, if I've got more cores and I've got more CPUs, that's better because I can run these things in parallel and it maybe gains me some efficiency to get at all of that memory space that's out there. Yeah, sure. We have clients who run on traditional kind of boxes that are sitting out there that they can run Geode on or, or our actual Gemfire project. But the thing is, is that you have to be careful about the number of features you turn on. So if you start turning on cache eviction, if you start running a whole bunch of functions in the background, if you start turning on a lot of the features, then obviously you're going to start consuming more memory in RAM, and you're also going to start consuming a significant number of the CPU cycles. So I used, and this is from a sizing project we did several years ago on a virtual machine. I used this as a rule of thumb for virtual machines where I think a 128-gig VM that is got, I think it's 12 cores assigned to it, can run about 2,000 transactions with 80% reads, 20% updates. And then I just extrapolate from that for virtual machines. Obviously, on bare metal, that number changes because it's going to be a little bit faster. I don't have to go through the hypervisor and things like that. Okay. So it's like like everything. Nothing's for free. 
you know, but in general, you've got some rules of thumbs that you can work with if you're designing a system that's going to support an IMDb, which that seems to be the common acronym. You guys can, is IMDb actually something that, that you use? As I saw that in some documentations, I was researching for this show, and then I went, wait a minute, that's an app that talks about Hollywood and actors and stuff. <laughs> Maybe IMDb Swap. uses an IMDb. You never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Swap no. Yeah, Swap no. You, you take this one. <laughs> sure. So I guess the, the, the term that we use is IMDG so in memory data grid and not just a database because distributed systems is actually at the core of everything we do, right? It's almost never a single server by its own. So let's talk about that. Let's shift from the individual node up to the distributed system itself and some caveats and some design issues or, or concerns there, starting with the fact that in generically or, or geode specifically, there's got to be a strategy in mind for distribution of the data. Is it sharding the data? Is there something else that you're using, mirroring, et cetera? You know, what's the, uh, what's sure. the architecture look like? So it actually would depend on, you know, your application. So say you have, uh, since we're talking about airlines and airline reservation system, the mapping of the city to airport codes, right? That is something that is essentially a reference data, right? And it's not changing that often. But it would be useful to have that data on each of the geoed servers so that if you are doing a join, the data is readily available to you, right? We support this replication strategy. So, you know, so some, you can choose that some data is replicated on all the members of your system then the other data can be sharded essentially across uh, across the distributed system. I got to say, though, anytime you get into a distributed computing with this sort of a model, because the whole point in memory gets you the performance, and then as soon as you go outside the box to do comms across some kind of a network, you're going to introduce a lot of latency again. And so we're back to the network between hosts being the major bottleneck, at least for certain operations. I mean, is that is that a fair statement? Yes. So I, I would like to, again, point out to the workload, right? So it depends on what you're trying to do. So if you are able to successfully model your workloads so that all the data that you need for carrying out that particular workload happens to be co-located on a single machine, then your transactions are going to go super fast, right? And that's why the replication thing that we talked about previously, that is where it helps out essentially. Again, say a customer order scenario, right? So in that case, we would make sure that a customer and all the orders of the particular customer are always co-located on a single single server. And so at that point, everything that you would want to do with that customer is always super fast. The number of times that you actually have to do an operation across different customers, well, I wouldn't say it's less, but what you can do is you can do it in parallels, right? So say you wanted to find out who your top five customers were, right? So at that point, you could just issue a query and then that query runs in parallel on all the servers and then aggregates the results and sends it back to you. So I guess the question would, the answer would be, depends on how you model your data. If you model it correctly, then... It always uh, depends. Yeah, Yeah, it really does. It depends. (laughs) The worst answer by a consultant ever. <laughs> it depends. I... <laughs> well, well, it sounds like we're addressing two different issues, right? Possibly two different issues when we get into the distributed scenario. You know, one issue is redundancy of data, resiliency of the environment. But then there's also a scale-out aspect where you're just needing to scale across hosts simply to, to handle the workload. Am I correct in assuming that? I mean, there's really two different problems being addressed here. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you are sharding data, but then for all the data, then you do have redundant copies as well. So yeah. <laughs> but we do we do try to mitigate some of that. So you've talked about trips back and forth from the client to the server. Yeah, that's an issue. But we have features inside of the product that actually allow you to get a connection to every server. And because we ship metadata about the grid, we can know exactly which server to go to without having to hop across a bunch of other servers as well. So there's some savings in there. Hmm. So what else comes across as a, something you've learned or something you've taken away from doing this you know, in the field in reality with folks that you could pass along to the infrastructure engineers that are that are listening, you know, as far as, hey, keep this in mind when you're doing architecture for the nodes, the storage, the network, you know. I mean, it's always the network, as Ethan is quick to quick to defend himself on. But, <laughs> you know, not. a distributed system is not simple. And I imagine there's a few, you know, keep an eyeball out for these various pitfalls or these these considerations that would be worthy just to, just to be aware of. Wow, my biggest concern, and I always mention this to folks, is that the network does not start and stop at the NIC card. You know, there's a lot of networking that goes on board the actual computer itself inside of the OS. And so you have to make sure you're really tweaking that stuff inside of there, because once it gets out into the network, the network guys own it. But there's a lot of engineering that you need to think about. And so, for instance, RHEL, you know, there's different ways to manage things inside of RHEL to do different things. You got to pay attention to that. So as we're talking about distributed system, I mean, most of the time when we're talking about a network in a typical data center, it's Ethernet. It's some sort of an Ethernet fabric. There's been sizing and tiering that's been done to get you from the tour to the spine and back. Is that the typical sort of a network that you see? Or do you get into some of the more exotic things like, oh, it's not Ethernet because that's just not good enough, not reliable enough, fill in the blank with whatever it is about Ethernet that you don't like. And there's many things that you could say. Do you maybe get into InfiniBand, if not Ethernet, or, or RDMA, if not Ethernet? My experience in the field has always been Ethernet. I've not dealt with InfiniBand much, but uh, Swapno can weigh in here. I think we have one user who's actually using InfiniBand out in the wild. Just a well, rebel without a cause, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so taking performance to the, to the max, right? But yeah, but so uh, RDMA and InfiniBand, right? They definitely help. Because one of the things that they offer is the zero copying aspect. And as Jim was mentioning, so the network doesn't stop at, at the NIC card, right? So even when you are trying to read data, so you first have that in, in your uh, NIC buffer and then the OS copies it in the OS buffer. And from there, it then needs to go into the application layer. And so it is copied there again. And then if we <laughs> if you're trying to store it in off-heap memory, then we again copy it to the off-heap memory, right? So it's a bunch of copies that are going around at any given point. So if you do have an RDMA, it definitely helps. <laughs> I want to tease apart failure scenarios a bit, because that's typically what keeps me up at night and what I'm trying to plan for when it comes to redundancy and whatnot. I guess the two easy things that I can think of from a scenario perspective are, what if a host or a node in the cluster dies? And then more probably problematically is what do I hit a split brain or, or something where the system's alive, but it's partitioned more at a network level. It can't see one another. How is failure handled for those two scenarios? Right. So for explaining how network partition, I, I should maybe preface it by how uh, the geo distributed system works in general, right? So if you think of all the members that have joined the cluster as a list, then each member 
is responsible for checking the health of the member on its left and so if at any point it sees that you know the member is has died it uh, initiates what we call suspect processing essentially and so at that point the coordinator who is like the oldest member in the system tries to establish a connection to that member and if he fails then we kick that member out then he sends a single view saying you know this member has left and if at any point if in that single update if we figure out that more than 50% of the members are missing then we assume that there is a network partition and then the side which has lost more than 50% of the weight right it essentially stops responding to any requests so it is not going to serve web data Okay, so you're not going to get a scenario where the split brain, both of them are going to be functioning and then have to reconcile. You're actually going to decide whoever's got 50% or, or, well, more than 50% is quorum. That part of the cluster is going to stay up. Everyone else knows we're not part of the quorum. We're not going to handle transaction requests anymore. They're just going to stop using themselves. Yeah. That's how we work. There are other products that have a different way of handling that. I, I know of one in particular that... They actually don't kill off. I, I call it committing suicide. They don't actually commit suicide. <laughs> they keep running, and then they try to merge back later. And it's just, it doesn't work that well, in my opinion. I think our, I think our solution is really slick and good. So they did a right, good job. So, e- so even in this case, right, so our process doesn't die really. So, right, it, it's just not processing any transactions. Right. And we're always trying to then figure out if the network is healed. And as soon as the network is healed, we then get the latest state from the other side, and then uh, those servers are up and running again. Got it. So they don't power themselves down or anything dramatic like that. They're just saying, I can't reach the rest of the cluster. I'm the smaller portion of the failure, so I'm just going to stop participating and wait yep. for it to be alive. And there's, yeah. there's no need for a witness, it sounds like, either, because the cluster just determines what goes on. Yeah, the cluster just determines what what's goes. So, yeah, it's it's trying to actively ping the other side, and as soon as it's able to get through, then it you know connects back. Yeah. My, all I was saying when commit suicide, in, in my experience, most times when we have those kinds of failures, it just turns out to be a terminal case. So we sure. just have to kill it and bring something else up. Kill it with fire. I was a little surprised, I guess, to hear that Ethernet was the default interconnection fabric. And, and it's just because this is an application where you can imagine InfiniBand or RDMA could really work if all the drivers and the expectations were set. But because those are a little more exotic and a little more spendy, I guess in that context, I'm not surprised that Ethernet is the interconnection fabric. But then it really becomes incumbent on the network designer to be building out an Ethernet fabric that's got some very specific characteristics that are going to deliver very timely packets between nodes here. In other words, that fabric has got to be reliable because there were a lot of things we were talking about here where, well, in this circumstance, then you're going to be copying all this data between these hosts and so on. So I was imagining moments of large amounts of data suddenly needing to get copied between nodes and then a lot of other times more the steady state where that wasn't the case. But either way, you've got to design an Ethernet fabric that's going to tolerate that kind of throughput and bandwidth requirements between the nodes and be able to deliver predictably every time and not like, oh, I'm congested today and I'm not going to deliver in a timely way. So not acceptable, just not acceptable. 
That's not what Ethernet's good at. So you really got to design the fabric carefully if that seems to be what you're stuck with for your in-memory database network design. What was your takeaway, Chris? Well, that was a heck of a takeaway there, Ethan. Uh, around layer one, you know, just we talked about the use of power compared to how much memory is in there that it's going to consume a lot of power. So yeah, don't forget that just because you can physically fit stuff into a data center doesn't mean that you can. You know, it requires powered cooling and even floor structural support for the weight. So make sure that the the easy stuff is still handled, even though you're doing this all sci-fi and memory stuff. Our Data Not sponsor today, Liquid Technology, asks the following. Do you have decommissioned IT equipment just sitting in your data center or office? Is your company planning an upgrade, cloud migration, or relocation? Liquid Technology can help. They will de-rack, pack, and purchase your excess technology hardware. Increase your budget by getting money back for your excess IT equipment. Liquid Technology will ensure your end-of-life IT equipment is safe. They provide on- or off-site auditable data destruction services. Whether your operations are in Tulsa or Tokyo, Liquid Technology has expert knowledge in local regulations to deliver a compliant global solution to your company. If you are concerned about the environment, note that Liquid Technology is an EPA-recognized, dual-certified green recycler. Don't let your assets depreciate in power-down racks or storage rooms. Gain that space back and maximize the return of your excess technology. Visit liquidtechnology.net slash podcast today for a chance to win a $300 Amazon gift card. That's liquidtechnology.net slash podcast. Oh, I don't know if uh, Jim or Swapnil wants this. My question is this. What does a, a healthy, happy IMDG cluster look like? If everything's going well, are there like uh, you know, characteristics that you would describe that system as having? Well... In a happy cluster, you are able to scale infinitely, I guess. <laughs> just, just kidding. <laughs> Why am I imagining Bob Ross like painting a cluster with his brushes? Here's a happy little cluster here. Yeah. Well, happy, happy, happy little nodes. Happy That's little right, notes. happy little nodes. <laughs> exactly. To me, it's empty queues. It's no latency from GC. It's below the memory that we would expect to see before we instantiate GC. It's no back pressure from trying to write to disk. Response times are within the SLAs. In other words, everything has been sized such that under peak load, there's no, as you put it, there's no, there's no back pressure to write to disk. There's no queuing of transactions because the system is able to handle the load that's coming at it in a timely fashion. And it's not having to park things and wait while some part of the system is catching up. Sure. And, and no NAS, apparently, right, Jim? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. What about, this is great for day one, when you provision the in- environment, you're going to be able to purchase 10 shiny new identical servers. Moving forward, though, that's not the case. You're not going to want to buy old stuff. You're going to want the newer stuff. So do the cluster members, you know, the nodes within that grid, do they have to have the exact same memory, CPU architecture, et cetera, or can you kind of mix and match? You can definitely mix and match. The resource management that we do is on a per-member level. So we are always trying to monitor how much a heap is filled with data. And as soon as it crosses a certain percentage, then we actively try to evict our stuff or overflow it out to the disk, I guess. So if you have servers that have varying amounts of memory, it's not really a problem. Is there anything i got to be worried about 
if my major focus is scale, it's like, I know my database and the load on this database is X today, but because we're going to be ramping up a lot more customers, we're going to be getting much larger data sets coming in. I know I need to be able to scale this environment out. If I'm very focused on that scaling out capability, is there, from a systems perspective, an architecture perspective, some design characteristics I should be focused on to make sure that I will be able to scale it in the future as my demands grow? So absolutely, yeah. So there, we have we can scale vertically, we can scale horizontally. What I traditionally do with guys is in day-to-day care and feeding of a geode cluster, there are certain things we're going to look at. We're going to look at CPU. We're going to look at number of client connections. We're going to take a look at the RAM. Is my GC going well? Am I writing to disk? If I got enough disk space, all that kind of stuff. But the second thing I've really emphasized with folks is there's two kinds of monitoring you need to do. That's the daily care and feeding. And the other one is for capacity planning. So that's a little bit different. What are my reads and writes to disk? Have they been increasing uh, logarithmically, exponentially over time? And so you have to look at those trending. So we have just a huge number of MBeans that you can connect to in our, our JMX server. And you can look at those things over time. And then you can make a decision within your organization. Do I have more resources available on a particular machine? Do I need to increase RAM for it? Can I allocate more CPUs to it? Or does it make more sense to scale this out horizontally? And so by scaling out horizontally then, from a a system design perspective, we're talking about a database that is able to be distributed in a scale-out way. So if I add another host with more memory and CPU to add to the pool, is that an undramatic thing or is there any way that I could configure the database in such a way that makes that harder for me or is it just inherent within I mean, – we're talking about Apache Geode here. Is it inherent in that system that when I need to scale out and just slam a new host in the rack, I can do that, add it to the cluster, and it's kind of no big deal? Yeah. <laughs> Swap, <laughs> go ahead. This... Yeah, absolutely. It is actually uh, not a big deal at all. So uh, one thing to keep in mind is when you add a new member in the cluster, we end up moving, you know, some amount of data from existing nodes onto the new cluster, right? So if you are planning on adding multiple nodes, we suggest that you start them up and then do the rebalance operation only once so that you're not thrashing data from server to server. So the system handles the rebalancing automatically, it sounds like. I mean, I'm going to trigger it when I've got all the nodes added to the system that I want to have added, but you know, I don't have to get terribly involved in that? Absolutely. Uh, you don't ha- have to at all. So we have a nice command line tool, and um, so all you need to do is go there and type in rebalance and hit enter and let the system do the rest. Doesn't get much easier than that. I know <laughs> Ethan loves yeah. command line tools, so yeah, you could actually run it with a test first to figure out if if this is really worth doing too. So the GFish tool is awesome. Well, cool. At this point, I'm thinking, all right, I I think I get it at least at a high level. And now I'm thinking about day two and beyond when it comes to how do I back this up? How do I make sure that I'm protected against site level failures so that I can restore this for disaster recovery, et cetera? Is that a consideration I should care about? And if so, what kind of tools are offered to make sure that I can back up and restore the in-memory data grid? Again, from the GFish tool, right? Um, Again, there are simple commands, which says backup, which will backup your disk store for you. (laughs) And you can also do incremental backup. So there is that. That is for, I guess, just backing up and, and then restoring. What For disaster recovery, we also support a WAN gateway, right? So you can actually have 
two independent clusters connected over WAN. And you can actually then configure the second cluster to be a passive cluster, which is you know uh, on the standby if anything bad were to happen to a main cluster. Or you can also configure it in an active-active manner. So the data that is modified on each site is sent across to the other site. You know, both sites are eventually consistent. That would definitely make sure that your hardware is being utilized. Mm. So right? on, on I can grab fulls, sites. I can grab incrementals, and I can even just go full-blown either hot-warm or hot-hot site. Yep. And all are kind of valid topologies. Interesting. If I'm setting up a, a monitoring environment for my IMDG, are there specific metrics or cues or you know things that typically I would be monitoring to make sure the health of the system is what it should be? I guess as as Jim uh, referred to earlier, right? So definitely monitor uh, the amount of heap. That is the most critical aspect, I guess. A second close would be if your CPUs are running hot and disks. So well, one thing that is not quite intuitive is file descriptors. Since Geode is uh, highly concurrent, we do tend to use a lot of file descriptors. So it would be nice to be on a lookout if you're running out of file descriptors. Yeah, check your U-limits when you set this system up and make sure you've got enough ability to open up enough files. The other thing that I mention to a lot of clients a lot of times when they do implementations is to make sure that they monitor their logs to see if they're starting to get a lot of error messages in their logs saying, hey, you know what, I, I can't talk to this guy. And if I see one or two every couple of minutes and one node is having a problem connecting to another node, maybe it's not an issue. But if we start seeing a lot of them popping up, I recently had a client implement this where I said, you got to scrape the logs. So they go into Splunk, they scrape the logs, they look at that, and it works really well. And they start seeing a lot of connection issues. Then they contact the network guys and say, hey, we think we have a problem. So let's jump on this and figure out how or if we have an issue. That's right. You think you have a problem. You approach those network engineers with respect. That's what they they deserve. (laughs) You assume nothing. (laughs) That's the way that you're going to get something done there. (laughs) I'm just not even going to go. I'm not going to go there. I'm really not. I I really want to, but I won't. Someone has to set up the Ethernet to your NAS. You should be nice to those people. That's right. (laughs) I would sometimes I want to use tin cans and a string. Okay, this has been a great conversation about in-memory databases and architecture and a lot of thought-provoking and thoughtful things that we've discussed here. We really appreciate your time. And if you would, Jim uh, and then Swampdale, Jim, are you social? Are you active on Twitter? Do you blog? Anything that where folks could follow up with you, find you, read your stuff, etc.? I actually do blog. I haven't made entries recently. It's James Biedenbald at Blogspot is what I use. And then Qui-Gon Papa Jim is on Twitter. Wonderful. What about you, Swampdale? Yep, so I I am on Twitter, uh, and my handle is sbabaskar. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much to both of you for taking the time to have this discussion with us. And to all of you listening, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots Podcast. You can reach Ethan, that is me, at ECBanks on Twitter. And my blog is ethancbanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter. And his blog is wallnetwork.com. 
for more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, fling yourself with fervor towards packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Nots talking about storage, servers, networking, cloud, security, development, automation, open source projects, useful vendor tools, all with both feet planted in today's data center, but both eyes fixed on the future. And until then, may your server lights blink, your RAM trips avoid cosmic rays, and your cables be cleanly managed. Is a field, so you know, he's obviously a masochist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>